You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. It is a great joy for me to be here this weekend. I've enjoyed it so much. I, I was telling uh, different members of the staff of the church, I have this rich privilege of being dropped into situations I've never been in before and seeing God's work and seeing the vitality of this church, the love of God, the uh, having the opportunity to work with some of the staff that are so dedicated to God and humble. Uh, it's just been a great joy. So thank you so much. It's been my privilege to be here. I want to... Uh, have entitled this, What is a Family? Uh, in, in sociology, that's a real hot topic because family is always being redefined. But uh, and this morning, I want to give you three ways, three perspectives from which to look at family that I think will be transformative for you if you really get a hold of them. So I want to think about the family as a theological community. It's a, it's a school of theology where we learn about God. It's a sociological community. Uh, it's a school of, of, of learning how to live with other people and how to love other people, how to accept and embrace other people, how to receive from them both good and bad. It's a, it's a redemptive community where we're continually reminding ourselves of the grace and power of the gospel. So that's my outline. That's what I want to look at with you today. The family is a theological community and really a foundational truth even behind that statement is the truth that uh, all of our children are worshipers. Uh, we are all worshipers, actually. We're people made in the image of God. We're made for God. Uh, we're made for glory. We're made for the endless wonders of seeing God and delighting in God and being overwhelmed with His greatness and glory and goodness uh, because we're made in His image. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. You're made in the image of God. You're made for God. You're, you're made for glory. You're made for grand and glorious and marvelous things that are outside of you. And, and life is found as we find Him, as we know Him. So your children are uniquely designed as worshiping beings. Secondly, are your kids uh, interpret their world. Uh, they interpret everything that comes to them. We all do that. We interpret people, circumstances, situations. And, and, we, and, and, and the key to getting the interpretation right is understanding who God is. Because unless we understand who God is, we can't interpret our life experience accurately. We've got to know who the Lord is. And, and in fact, we could say all the problems of living that human beings have really come from failing to know who God is, from failing to acknowledge God. Paul talks about that in Romans 1, doesn't he? He says, he says that... Uh, People make this great exchange. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for things in the creation, for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Uh, we make that exchange. And when we make that exchange, all the problems that come in living come because human beings have made that great exchange and failed to worship God. If we worshiped Him and loved Him as we ought, we would live together in peace and harmony. And the the fact that we don't is because we fail to worship Him as we ought. In fact, at the end of Romans 1, there's this statement. It says, since they did not uh, retain the knowledge of God, in other words, since they made that great exchange and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, they've become filled with uh, all every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers. God-haters, 
insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All the things that make life difficult interpersonally in a broken world, in a fallen world in which we live, are really described in that passage. Uh, and in light of that, it's so important that our family be this theological community, the school of theology, where we're teaching our children about God so they can understand who God is. And the psalm that we just had read to us expresses that so beautifully. I don't know any place that uh, expresses it in one psalm so clearly, this calling to show our kids God's glory. In fact, did you catch that fourth verse of the psalm? It said, one generation will commend your works to another. That, that's really descriptive of the family as a school of theology. We're to be, as parents, one generation commending the works of God, the wonders of God to our children, delighting them in the marvel of who God is, helping them to be amazed at His splendor and His majesty and His power and, and glory. Uh, we want to dazzle them with, with such a wonderful, glorious God. And so, because remember, you're raising worshipers in your home. You're raising children who are spring-loaded for worship. They're made in the image of God. They're made for God. They're made for glory. They're uniquely designed as worshiping beings. And, and the family is a school of theology where we're teaching them about God because your children are made to see the wonders of God. They're made for the deep communion of joy in God and seeing God's goodness and glory and finding their delight in Him. In fact, if they're to live in this world in ways that are whole, they've got to embrace the joys of God and knowing God because it's only the supremacy of God that can keep all the other aspects of life in their proper place. I love the way John Piper puts this, that God has to be the blazing sun at the center of the solar system of our life who has the weight and mass to keep all the planets of our lives in their proper orbit. So uh, the planets of our, our career, our education, our marriage, our sexuality, our relationships are all kept in order as God is the, is the sun at the center of the solar system who has the weight and mass to keep everything in order. So we're raising children who are worshipers. And one of the most important lessons of life without which life cannot be lived successfully uh, has to do with knowing God. So we want to talk to our kids about God. And I want to encourage you with just engaging your kids with God. And do it in very simple ways. Just talking to them, asking questions, saying, did you ever think about God's authority? What an amazing thing. God, the Word of God says that all authority in heaven and earth is mine. God is the one who places kings on thrones. There's nothing in our lives that's so big that's outside the control of God. All friendships, education, people, political parties, systems of government, it's all under the control of God. He, he is, he is, it's under His authority. There's nothing so small that it's not under His authority. If those subatomic things that are too small for us to even see with a microscope are under the authority of God. And, and he does his will, Daniel 3 says, and no one can say to him, what are you doing? Uh, God is supreme in his changelessness. There's this quality in God, he doesn't change. I was talking to a group of teenagers recently about changelessness and trying to engage them. Did you ever think about the changelessness of God? Now you change, what are the reasons why you change? You change your plans, your ideas, your thoughts, your 
your, your objectives. Uh, why do you change? And they were very quickly able to identify the reasons why we change. It's because of the unknown, the unexpected, the unanticipated, things that come on our blind side. And, and we were able just to turn in that conversation and think, what a wonder God is. Nothing ever comes up on his blind side. He's changed us in, his, in all of his attributes. Or think of his eternality. The home is a, is a theological community, a, a school of theology for teaching our children these things. And engage your kids. Did you ever think about the eternality of God? This being that never had a beginning, that was always being. And will never have an end, that will always be. I mean, we can actually say the words without our minds being able to grasp the wonder of that. But it's, it's a wonderful exercise to engage kids in thinking about the eternality of God. Or think about the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. Remember how in, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in, with Christ even when we were dead. For it's by grace that you've been saved. God, in His grace, does that marvelous miracle. Uh, it, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, he sh he, the one who said, let there be light, shines His light into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's amazing grace. God's incredible work of grace in our hearts. Or think of God's justice. Children are always concerned with justice because uh, the world's a place of injustice. And children feel that very acutely and they're always concerned about, about fairness. It's a wonderful thing to think about the fact that one day God will settle all accounts and he will bring everlasting justice to every injustice that has ever been done on the face of this planet. Every time of abuse or mistreatment of a person, it will all be under the just and holy judgment of God. We know the Song of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 15, 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and right are your ways, O King of the heavens. God is supreme in his knowledge. This is a great one to engage kids about. I used to say to my kids when they were young, <coughs> I would say, do you know God never learned anything? Or they would look at me. Daddy, you're insulting God. Because to say to a human being, you never learned anything is a terrible insult. But for God, God never learned anything because God is the sum of all knowledge. He knows all things. He never forgets anything. He, he, he embraces all knowledge. He is, he's the all-knowing God. And, and help your children to get a hold of this truth. That, that because God is infinite in his knowledge, he can give us a revelation which is absolutely true. Because absolute truth is a monopoly of infinite knowledge. And, and, and Daniel tells us he knows what's in the darkness. The family is a community for learning these kinds of things. I mean, dazzle your kids with the fact that God knows all things actual, possible, potential. Uh, he knows all things. Help them to imagine a being whose knowledge surpasses all the data that is stored on the Internet all the data in, cyber, in cyberspace, all the more knowledge than all the books and all the libraries that ever existed throughout all time. He knows even more than all of that because he is, he is the sum of all knowledge. Nothing can be compared to his knowledge. Or God supreme in his love. Where is God's love most powerfully demonstrated? It's the cross, isn't it? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning 
sacrifice for our sins. Help your, your children marvel at the love of God that would move God to, to not even spare his son, but freely give him up for us all. Because God so loved the world, this broken, fallen world that we're part of. <coughs> Excuse me. Think of God supreme in his patience. Romans 15.5 describes God as a, as, a, as a patience. There's this quality of forbearance in God. He, he doesn't bring upon us instantly what we deserve. If we were to have instantly what we deserve, none of us would survive to even be saved. But God forbears with us, and he forbears with this planet and its rebellious people so that we will come to our senses, as 2 Timothy 2 says, and escape the trap of the devil that's taken us captive to do his will. Think of God who's supreme in his power. All, all power belongs to God, Psalm 62 says. God created this entire universe by his word of power. We have a God who speaks words and Galaxies come into existence. Solar systems are formed. And, and they're sustained by his word of power. Uh, he has power even to reverse the effects of the fall. He can make dead men live. And blind men see. And lame men walk. And dumb men speak. And deaf men hear. And people that are wild and crazy and cut themselves with stones and knives into people who are sane and in their right mind. What an amazing powerful God. Talk to your kids about these things. Talk to them about the power of God. God. God is amazing. Think of his providence. He controls all of his creatures and all of their actions. Because of his, of his providential care, even the very hairs of our head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus says, without your father. You can engage your kids if you talk to them and just Talk about the attributes of God. Did you ever think about the power of God? What are the limits of the power of God? And just engage them, interact with them. I, was, uh, I have nine grandchildren, as you know, and uh, we, they all live nearby. So we have a family meal once a month. We have a Sunday afternoon together and we eat together. And uh, I was on the way home from church one Sunday. My uh, five-year-old grandson wanted to ride home with grandpa. And so we're riding along in the car. And uh, as we drove along, without any prompting from me, he said, Grandpa, did you know God is dangerous? I said, what do you mean, Ben? He said, my papa told me God can do anything he wants to do and no one can stop him. And then to amaze me, he said, he could make this car disappear with us in it right now. Poof, we'd be gone. <laughs> so papa says he's good, but he's dangerous. Now, I think that's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom for a five-year-old. But the interesting thing is, I, as I reflected on this, this little guy had had a conversation with his dad some days earlier, in which his dad had talked about this quality in God, and his little five-year-old brain was still amazed by it, dazzled by it, turning it over, so that without any prompting from me, he, he brought it up. I was probing him. You know, Ben, have you been doing any theological thinking this week? Uh, <laughs> He brought it up out of the clear blue because his little brain was still spinning and still dazzled by this idea of a God who could do anything he wanted to do and no one could stop him. We can dazzle our kids with truth about God. Think of the son, supreme in his purity, never did anything wrong or correctable, never cranky, never out of complaining, never out of sorts. 
uh, or Christ supreme in his kindness and graciousness. He won't break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering flax. Think of Christ supreme in his obedience to the Father. He always did the Father's will, always spoke the Father's words, was obedient even to death on the cross. So think of Christ supreme in his promise keeping. He keeps his word. He remembers his words. His words are true and reliable. Think of Christ supreme in his wisdom. Never bewildered, never confused, never wondering, what do I do now? Think of Christ supreme in his wrath. One day, uh, God will come in power and glory with his holy angels, and he'll pour out the full cup of his wrath on the impenitent and unbelieving. And people will call for the rocks and mountains to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. If you notice, even that beautiful psalm that we read, it said, at the end it said, He's faithful in all of his ways, and, and, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. What an amazing God. He's supreme in the, in the fellowship of his own triunity. We have a God who, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, continually existing in joy and fellowship with one another. No need in God that required him to create uh, people. He made us, he, he created the whole creation in us as people in his image, and the whole created order are the overflow of the greatness of his own joy and his own triunity. He was complete and entire within himself. What an amazing God. Now, why is this so important? Your kids are hardwired for worship. They're made as worshipers. And of course, uh, they're interpreters of their world. What they worship tells them uh, what things mean and how to respond to life. And the primary truth of getting the interpretation right is the glory and goodness of God. And as parents, our goal is to show God to them. Let me just remind you of something very obvious. If you're not dazzled by God, you can't dazzle your kids with God. Uh, we can't give away something we don't possess. I love the way Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, there's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on your heart of the beauty of that holiness and grace. It's as different, Edward says, as having the rational belief that honey is sweet and having the taste of its sweetness on your palate. You see, if, if we're going to show the glory of God to our kids, we've got to have the taste of the sweetness of it in our mouth. And then it'll be the most natural thing for us to talk to our kids about the wonders of God. The family is a school of theology. The family is also a school of sociology. It's a place where people learn to live as social beings. And really, the two tables of the law are bound up there, aren't, there, aren't they? Because um, the first table of the law is loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table of the law is loving others like you love yourself. It's learning to live with other people. It's the second table of the law. And so the family is a place where we learn to live with other people, where we learn to get along. Now, if you think about it, there's a shocking amount of conflict in your, in your family. Uh, you know, every day you're confronted with an uh, endless variety of arguments uh, from your children. Uh, your children fail to respond as people who are under authority. They argue over who gets to go first. They fight over their toys. Uh, they refuse to share their toys. They argue about where they're going to sit in the car. They argue about whose chair it is. Did you ever have those times when 
you're watching a game or a movie or something, and the commercial break comes and one of the kids goes to refresh his, his, uh, his snacks and he gets up out of the primo chair that he's sitting in and one of the other kids comes and sits in that chair and you know as soon as he comes back there's going to be World War III uh, over the chair. Uh, there's a shocking amount of conflict. Uh, they mock each other's mistakes. Now all these conflicts that we live with every day in our families are valuable part of the learning process for children who are social beings. And we have to train ourselves not to look at the conflicts as unnecessary uh, problems, but rather see them as opportunities. They're opportunities for our children to learn to understand themselves and to understand others. And, and so as Christians, we want to understand conflict biblically. We want to have a rich biblical understanding of why do we have conflicts with other peoples. And James 4 talks about this with such clarity. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within you? James is, is helping us to understand conflict. And he does something very interesting. He starts at the fruit, fights and quarrels, but he goes right down to the root and he says it comes from things going on inside. It comes from the root. It comes from the... Uh, the, the desires that wage war within. And of course, you know, uh, the purpose of war is to take the places of command and control, and you have desires that wage war within. And so James does something very different with conflict than we typically do, because we typically tend to look outside ourselves for the reason of conflict. So we, we, we say, uh, he makes me so, so mad. She laughed at me when I made a mistake. Uh, you never listen. Even some of you who are married without children, you say to your spouse, you blame your spouse for the conflicts. If you'd only listen to what I said, we wouldn't be having this problem. Uh, James says if you want to understand your anger, you don't look outside, you look inside. They come from the, the things that go on inside. You fight because you're not getting what you want. The people in situations are not the reasons for my conflict. They're when the conflict takes place, but the anger is always internal. The reason is always internal. So James talks about these desires that wage war within. That it's these desires that wage war within that are the reasons for the conflict. Uh, we get angry when we're not getting what we want. Let me give you an illustration. Now this would be an old one for me because my kids are grown, but imagine with me, I come home from work, I pull into the driveway, there's a bicycle right in my pathway. So I got to put the car in park, get out, of the, get out of the car, move the stupid bicycle, get back in the car, pull the car into my parking spot. I feel very impatient with this child who owns the bicycle. I go in and I find him. I say, why did you leave your bicycle in the driveway? I told you a hundred times never to leave your bicycle in the driveway. Next time I'm going to drive over it. I will, I will drive over it. I don't care if it damages my car. I will drive over it. Don't you ever leave your bicycle on the driveway again. And he says in his own defense, Daddy, I just went in for a minute because I had to go to the bathroom. I don't want your excuses. I don't care if you wet your pants. I never want you to leave your bicycle on the driveway again. Now, if you came along at this moment and you said, Ted, 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 why are you so angry? Well, what do you think I would say? 
I'll tell you why I'm angry. Kid left his bicycle on the driveway. I told him a hundred times not to do that. But the bicycle on the driveway is not why I'm angry. The bicycle on the driveway is when I got angry. Why am I angry? I'm not getting what I want. I'm angry because I want my will to be done on earth as God's will is done in heaven. I want to speak and it happens. I want to say, let there never be a bicycle in the driveway and there's never a bicycle in the driveway. I want to be God. And this kid is reminding me that I'm not. And that's the reason for the conflict. Uh, it's, it's these things that are battling within. Because see, if my heart is being ruled by some desire, there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you're helping me get what I want, I'm going to like you and be happy with you, and you're going to be my best bud. But if you're keeping me from getting what I want, I'm going to be frustrated with you and impatient with you and in a general state of unhappiness as long as you're around. My problem is really not you. My problem is that my response to you is being shaped by these desires that are waging war within my heart. And now in a biblical vision, this is the reason for social conflict. And the, the, the family is a wonderful place to learn how to live with social conflict. It's a wonderful place to learn how to work through the issues of social conflict. It's a wonderful place for children to learn the ugliness of compulsive self-love. It's a wonderful place for them to learn the excellence of sacrificial love for others. It's a wonderful place for us to model for them what it means to be patient and kind when we're sinned against. It's an excellent place to learn to be a person who's not full of compulsive self-love, but, but one of those rare people like Timothy. Paul says of Timothy in Philippians 2, he says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your needs because everyone seeks after his own things and not the things of Christ. It's a wonderful place for kids to be like Timothy who take a genuine interest in the needs of others. And in this vision, the conflicts in the family are not unwanted uh, interruptions to life. They are a very vital part of the business of life. They are a valuable part of these teaching lessons that are part for a community of people who are, who are a social community where we learn to get along with others. And James 4 isn't something I just trot out to adjudicate disputes, but it's rather, uh, it's rather a paradigm that helps me understand the nature of conflict and why conflict takes place. Well, thirdly, our families are a redemptive community because that really leads us into the necessity of redemption because the benefit of the fights and quarrels that take place in our families are lost if we learn to solve the conflicts without the gospel. It's very easy for us to do that. It's very easy for us as parents to develop these elaborate systems that will keep our children from having fights with each other. And so we, we, we uh, learn how to manage the conflict rather than really address the conflict with the gospel. We try to solve the conflict without the gospel. Because the failures and fights that take place in our families actually show the heart. And, and 
one of the problems of idolatry in the heart is it blinds us. It blinds us even to ourselves. It, because in the nature of spiritual blindness, you're blind to the fact you're blind. Ezekiel uh, 2 talks about that. The idols are like putting a wicked stumbling block before your eyes. You can't see things with clarity when your idols are, are in, in front of your face. And the temptation for us to solve the problem without the gospel. So parents de de develop systems for resolving things. I remember one time we were on a road trip when I was a kid, and uh, you we've all heard the joke, you know, dad says, I'm gonna pull this car over right now. And well, my dad literally said that, and he did it. He pulled the car over, turned around to the back seat where my brother and I were fighting. He said, we're not gonna have any more of this fighting. I'm gonna build a wall right down the middle of the back seat of this car. You're not gonna be able to see it, but I want you just to realize and think about the fact there's a wall between you and your brother. You can't see through the wall. You can't reach through the wall. You can't even hear him through the wall. He's on that side. You're on this side. I don't want to hear any more of this, you know, and so forth. And so we started driving again. And within a mile or two, my brother said, you know, I can take one of the blocks out of this wall and I can still reach through and get you. <laughs> but it was, it was an attempt to solve the conflict without the gospel. Or we do it when we, our kids are fighting over a toy and we say, Okay, we're going to settle this. I'm going to set the timer on my phone. You get it for five minutes. When the phone dings, he gets it for five minutes. And you know, it's amazing. When you do that, the kids completely stop being selfish, don't they? Actually, we haven't solved the problem of selfishness. We're just regulating the problem. And in fact, you see it the moment that phone dings. He dives for the toy. My turn! He rips it out of the other kid's hand. You know, uh, he's just waiting. We haven't solved the conflict. We've just regulated the conflict. Because the gospel's not in it. And see, these conflicts are a wonderful context for showing our children how profoundly they need grace. The conflicts we have are a wonderful opportunity for us to talk to our children about how profoundly you and I as parents need grace. Because we need grace, we need grace to be forgiving. A child cannot love God and others without grace. God calls us to be what we can't be without grace. God says we're to love others as we love ourselves. We can't do that without grace. God must empower that obedience. Without Him, we cannot do it. And, and the conflicts Oh, show us how much we need grace. Now, our temptation so often, I talk to parents when I'm teaching on child rearing, they'll say, but my children are not Christians yet. How can I expect them to love each other from the heart when they're not Christians? And so we lower the standard. Rather than saying you're to love each other from the heart, we're going to lower the standard since you're not Christians. Can't you just be nice? And if we lower the standard and make the standard keepable without grace, we actually remove our kids from their need of grace. And one of the purposes of the law of God is to be a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. That reminds us of how much I need God. Because I can't love the people in my world as I ought to love them without God, without His grace, and without His work within me. And a, a child cannot live in the ways that they're called to live without the grace of the gospel. And so the conflicts are wonderful opportunities for us to talk to our children about how profoundly they need the grace of God. 
I remember one night, our daughter, she was the middle child in our family. She was maybe eight or 10 years old. She, I, we had put her to bed hours earlier and prayed with her and she had gone to bed. We, I assumed she was asleep, and, but I walked by her bedroom and I could hear her in her bedroom crying. And I went in to see what was wrong and I knelt down by her bed, rubbed her back and I said, honey, what's the matter? You're crying, what's, what's wrong? And she reached over to hug me and she's sobbing. And she said, daddy, you and mommy are always telling me I have to love my brothers from the heart. I can't do it, I can't love them from the heart. If you knew how mean they are to me, you would know I can't love them from the heart. It's not possible to love them from the heart. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me to embrace my daughter, to hold her, to love her, and to say to her, honey, you're right. <laughs> you can't love your brothers from the heart without God, without grace. And the call to love as you ought to love is really a call for you to, to come to Jesus, to find grace and forgiveness and empowerment and enablement because Christ can enable us to do what we cannot do otherwise. He can enable us to love, and I was able to, to identify with that struggle and say, honey, you know what? Daddy can't love you as I ought to love you without the grace of God. I can't love mommy in the ways I ought to love mommy without the grace of God. It's only God that enables us. You see, the, 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 the tension brought about by the law of God is an opportunity for the grace of the gospel. And when we solve problems without the gospel, we, we, we're, we're throwing our kids on their own resources and turning them away from their needs of God. And of course, as I've already mentioned, the wonderful thing about dealing with heart issues is I can stand in solidarity with my kids. It doesn't matter what the issue is. There are no ways that your children sin that you're unfamiliar with. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we sin in all the same ways. And it's not hypocrisy for us to correct them when they sin. It's hypocrisy for us to correct them and pretend we never sin. But to stand alongside them and say, I get it, I understand selfishness. Daddy knows how that works in the human heart. I understand the desire to gloat when my rival fails. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to not want to forgive someone who repeatedly sins against me. I can identify with my child's struggle and say there's hope for people like you and daddy. It's found in Christ and his grace and his capacity to forgive us and change us and empower us and enable us. There's hope for us. There's a place where we can go with our failure. And so the family is this redemptive community for people who sin and are sinned against. Because in a fallen world, it's never as easy as just I'm being sinned against. I'm always a sinner who's being sinned against. And people will wrong us, and I will wrong other people. And if you look at the families in the Bible, you don't have a Pollyanna view of families that are wonderful families that we ought to all emulate. You look at the families in the Old Testament, you find broken people and broken lives and you find a God who's full of grace and power and mercy and a capacity to save and, and renew and transform that we could not otherwise imagine. We have a God who's full of grace and, and, and mercy. And so it's a redemptive community. It's a, our homes, our places, our, our, our a school of, of, of grace where there's grace, where the goodness of Christ is being rehearsed again and again. We're reminding ourselves about the one 
who uh, became poor for us so that through his poverty we might be rich. We're thinking about the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who gave his one and only son to come into this world to live in our fallen world without sin and die as a sacrifice for our sin and who is raised by the power of God, who's at the right hand of God praying for us. It's a time to think about all those things. It's a place where there's grace, there's forgiveness. And so we, we, when we, we sin against one another, we're not blaming each other or threatening each other or belittling each other, but we're just remembering the grace of God and moving on. And it's a place where there's hope for us because God does heart transplant surgery and removes stony hearts and gives us a heart of flesh and puts his spirit in us to cause us to walk in his ways and remember his commands. We have a savior who is made like us in every way and yet was without sin. And, and because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help us when we're tempted. Hebrews 2.17 reminds us. And so our homes are communities where there's forgiveness and forgiving. Remember in Ephesians 4.32, the paradigm for forgiveness of others is the forgiveness we've received. Be kind, tenderhearted, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. The model for the forgiveness I must extend to others is the forgiveness I've received from Christ. And so as a family, we, we can stand in solidarity with our children and we can model hope for them in the place where we have found hope. And it's a place for teaching our children uh, to live for the glory of this God who's a worthy God who comes to redeem broken people. If we get this picture in place, family is a theological community, a family is a sociological community, a family where we're loving God, we're loving others, and where the redemption and the grace of the gospel is always being rehearsed it'll be transformative for your family. It'll change the nature of family life. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Ted, this is an overwhelmingly difficult task. I don't feel like I can be on task all the time doing these things. Uh, the 24-7 demands of vigilance and care in order to, to shepherd your kids in the ways I've described is more than we can possibly do. And Jesus was not speaking hyperbole when he said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. <laughs> but it's also true what Paul writes in Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There's grace for us in Christ. There's hope for us in Christ. Christ can enable you to be a mom, a dad, who's bringing the glories of God to your kids all the time, who's speaking freely and naturally about God. You can enable you to be a mom and dad who are understanding conflict biblically and helping your children to understand conflict biblically. He can enable you to be a parent who is bringing the grace of the gospel to your children every day so the goodness of God is the atmosphere in which they are living and growing. May God give us grace to do that. Let me pray with you. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts of thankfulness for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have, you have given us scriptures that describe our condition well, but we thank you, Lord, that you have given us reason for hope because Christ has come into our world in flesh like ours with a human psychology and lived in this broken world without sin 
fulfilled all righteousness so that we could be righteous and died as a sacrifice for our sins so that this, the, the sin, our sins could be atoned for and could be forgiven. We thank you that he prays right now at the right hand of the Father for us, for we who are here today, that Christ would be formed in us, that our homes would be places where we talk to our children about God, where we understand conflict biblically, and where the grace of the gospel is continually being rehearsed. Help us in this, Lord. We want it. We need it. We pray for your grace. We hope in you. In Christ's name, amen.